This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast that explores love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak. And I'm Sophia Alexandra. And this is episode two in our anti-racism series. Thank you for joining us. We hope you heard episode one, which was a really cool interview with Kristen Bennett. And you should go back and listen to that if you haven't. But if you have, welcome back for this interview with a really cool poet. Courtney, who do we got? We have Bridget Bianca. She is a poet and professor based in South Central. She is so, so talented. And I actually did a radio story on Bridget. So... We're going to play that for you first. This is Greater L.A., KCRW's show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Today, let's head out to the Hilltop Cafe. It's in Windsor Hills, an upper-middle-class African-American neighborhood in South Los Angeles next to Baldwin Hills. Now, the Hilltop is a proudly black-owned business, and it serves avocado toast and almond milk lavender lattes. It's a kind of hip neighborhood coffee shop that real estate agents love to point out to prospective home buyers. The place is packed with an eager audience, and this evening there's a special event for the Free Black Women's Library. A lineup of eight female poets are performing their work. All right, I'm Bridget Bianca. I'm a poet and professor from South Central Los Angeles. <laughs> Bridget Bianca's hair is shaved close and dyed aquamarine. She's wearing a brightly colored summer dress and a gold necklace. She takes the stage with a regal confidence. I'm going to give you all a couple of poems today. Um, and if you like them, let me know by snapping, hollering, stomping. Just don't throw nothing. <laughs> you don't own this place. Okay. Like many modern day poets, she doesn't shuffle a sheaf of papers and read from a stand. She just calls up her work on the screen of her smartphone. Reporter Courtney Kosak has been talking to Bianca about her work and life and her part in a growing local community of up-and-coming African-American writers. And today, we're going to tag along to the Hilltop for Bianca's performance. And just a warning, she uses some pretty strong language that you may find a little uncomfortable. This first poem is called A Message for Uppity Negresses. Like me. <laughs> and you too. I know what you're thinking when you see me. She thinks she all that. She thinks she too good. She forgot her place. She thinks she better than somebody. Well, the elders told me I had to be twice as good, twice as nice, twice as smart, twice as fast, twice as strong, twice as clean, twice as polite, work twice as hard to get half as much as you, and here I am. 
Laughing you in every race, outperforming, outlifting, outlasting, outplaying you in every match, still fighting for what you leave as table scraps of you. A pseudo-intellectual, a so-called conservative, liberal, progressive, feminist, suffragette, realist, socialist, and ally are jealous of my oppression. You. So in that poem, uh, I kind of I go through like a list of all the things like black parents kind of tell black children to be so that they won't be mistaken for not good black people. So being clean, being strong, but also the idea of being twice as good. I don't know if other uh, communities tell their children to be twice as good. Your sheerest victimhood to prove you too have been discriminated against. Someone once called you racist and you were aghast, you too have experienced sorrow and suffering and only your brown nanny or only your black mammy was there to kiss your boo-boo, you too. Have experienced words just as bad as nigger with a hard ER, such as mayonnaise, snowflake, paleface, and Becky, you too. Have been grappled with the burdens of history. The weight of ancestral guilt is too much to bear. You are tired of apologizing for your privilege. So that part of the poem it does hit really hard because I think all of us kind of have that experience. It's like, you tell your friend you're having a bad day, you're like, whoa, my day was horrible. It's like, okay, well just listen to my bad day, please. <laughs> just if you don't mind, we'll talk about your day next. And the elders taught me to be humble and keep my head down and you never notice me so I don't dance in the end zone. I don't beat my chest after I score. I just adore myself in the kind of things you would call tacky, ratchet. Ghetto, until you manifest my destiny, repackage it to be cool, urban, tribal, ethnic. And then you tell me you didn't even notice I was black. You said <laughs> But then we work twice as hard and we are twice as good, but then we're told, no, be humble. And what does be humble look like? Not humility, actually, but just be quiet. And like, don't embarrass anybody, just keep it down. So I want you to know, I am all that. I am too good. I know my place is first. And if you have to ask, then I have to confirm the rumors are true. I am better than you. And then the very end is always a big whoop for the audience because they realize like, yeah, you can be confident and it is okay. Like, you're not saying, hey, I'm better than you, but maybe that is what I'm saying. Maybe that is what you're hearing. Maybe you're right, if you feel that way. And so that poem kind of cycles through all these moments of what does it mean to be humble? What does it mean to be proud of who you are? And to kind of still be twice as good, which means being twice as confident sometimes, too. You have to. There are so many Black writers in particular out there, and I think that we might be missing them if we only look for the folks who are already winning the awards. I think we're missing out on a wealth of folks who just don't have the access just yet. And so I know there are spaces that are very, you know, open to diversity and then everyone comes in, but there's usually just one or two folks in when it comes to entry, right? I think that we need to start seeking those voices out where they already live. And that could be like Lamert Park for me. I'm at the world stage every Wednesday. And there are so many writers there who are just so incredible, who are just waiting for a shot or a chance, or maybe not waiting at all, honestly, but they're just saying, this is what I do. If you hear it, then great. But they could use that same access, right? That I have the MFA that they might not have, or that I have by working at a college, they might not have that, right? I talk about literature every day. They don't, but they still write really great stuff. So what happens 
They don't get assigned, they don't get awards, they don't get book publishing deals. Like what's going on there? I think we should put more attention in those directions and support in those directions. That's Bridget Bianca, who performs regularly all around L.A. You can find her events, by the way, online at BridgetBianca.com. And that story comes to us from reporter Courtney Kosak. So that's a little bit of an intro to Bridget and her work. She also has amazing poems about gentrification, police brutality, and mourning those victims. And obviously the themes that she talks about are super relevant to the cultural conversation that we're having today. So we wanted to have her on the show. Bridget, I am so excited that you agreed to talk to us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. When you reached out, I was like, yeah, I can do that. And I was like, wait, a relationship podcast, anti-blackness, what are we talking about on this podcast? (laughs) Very pro-blackness, (laughs) anti-racism. Courtney, I'm so glad you didn't accidentally switch those two, because sometimes (laughs) Courtney switches words. I'm like, oh, no. no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we met because you performed at Daniel Barron's uh, party that he threw for Yay LA Mag. And Sophia also performed at that party. So we both got to see you that night. I actually had to follow you. <laughs> and she's just like literally making people cry and just like rethink their privilege. And then I'm like, hey guys. So I'm here to just, you know, talk about some pussy jokes. Cool. All right. I, I'm I think garbage. I was supposed to follow you. <laughs> oh my God. That would have been better because... So that would have been... Like, we're laughing, and then now we're crying. What kind of torture is this? (laughs) (laughs) You were the headliner, and there's no reason I should have been out there just peddling my dumbness (laughs) right after. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you blew my mind that night, Bridget. I love your work so much. I'm a big fan, and, you know, listeners at the beginning of this episode, got to hear the KCRW piece. So they got to hear a little bit of your work. And we just really wanted to dive in deeper. Obviously, the last six weeks or so have just been like such a national moment where we're able to have this conversation that is so long overdue. And We want to use this as an opportunity to like educate ourselves further and get into these conversations and promote them for our listeners as well. So um, I saw you posted something today, actually. Yes. What was that reading? So um, in February, back when we could go outside, we can't go outside anymore. (laughs) um, My book was released at the Virgil, um, and I have a poem called Some Heroes Wear Their Do-Rags with the Capes Flapping, like a play on the idea of being a hero, because I watched Black Panther like a thousand times, and then also the idea of like just blackness, do-rags, this idea of like, this is what we look like every day, like we can be heroes in our everyday wear, we don't have to be Black Panther, right? Um, and so I wanted to post like a little snippet of that today because it is Juneteenth. Freedom, you know, is not just 1865. Freedom is every day. And so I wanted to share that little piece. And people always get a big kick out of it. Uh, they like the repetition of like, yes, and yes, and yes, that too. Mm-hmm. You can kind of hear that in the recording too. So I'm, I'm glad folks really think it was really special. But we still here. Still David at his sling. 
Still Harriet and her rifle. Still John Henry with the hammer. Still Jesse Owens whooping a Nazi's ass. Still Ali whooping Uncle Sam's ass. Still Michael Jackson on the moon. Still Carson Johnson with the math. Still Michael Jordan with the rock. Still Dr. King taking your knee. Still Kaepernick taking your knee. Still Rosa Parks taking your seat. Still Mahalia running down heaven. Still Richard Pryor raising hell. Still Fred Hampton with the bullhorn. Still Octavia yeah. with the pen. Still Malcolm X head to Mecca. Still Travis at the Mecca. Still Tanahasi at the Mecca. Still Morrison at the Mecca. Zora when she's laughing and Zora when she's looking mean and impressive. Still Barack Obama on the Capitol steps. Still Audrey Lord reminding us that she is not free while any woman is unfree even if her shackles look like Cuban links. Still, Come still Langston in Paris. Still Baldwin in Paris. Still Josephine in Paris. The time for running has come to an end. Stokely Carmichael said, tell them all the scared niggas are dead. I mean, all your work feels so relevant right now. There's something about talking about Black culture, particularly Black American culture, right? Where it's like, well, you know, what culture do you have? Are you American? Are you African? Do you have any particular, you know, African ancestors you can point to? It's like, what do you need to have to validate yourself as a, a person of culture in the world? And I think that Black culture is so much of the world. People know Black culture so well that even a depiction of a fictionalized African nation is somehow still intrinsically connected to Black American culture and, and with, uh, with the weaving of course of the diaspora and so that poem was just really me saying like hey here are all of our black american heroes here are all our black heroes and here's who we look up to and they're still doing it even if they've gone and passed they are still we are still these people right we are still those heroes we are still those folks that you look up to that you read about that you talk about that you quote you know we're still those folks and so i want to kind of start with like a biblical sense you know we're still fictional, we're still biblical, we're still realistic. We go back to Harriet Tubman and Jesus, right? All these folks are black, in case you didn't know, like, just kind of having that moment of like pride, here's who we are. Uh, and so I think it resonates for me right now because I write so much about social justice. As you know, I write so much about what's happening in the streets right now. You know, black bodies are falling everywhere. I write so much about that. And in this moment, I actually use this poem to end my book because I wanted to stop at a moment of black joy and celebration that even in the midst, we need that. So like today being Juneteenth, for example, is that kind of moment. We've been mourning, I'm still mourning even today, right? Mourning a collective loss due to the pandemic affecting African-Americans disproportionately. I lost an aunt myself. Um, and also just I'm literally so seeing black people being killed. I'm so sorry. Thank you, thank you. But black people being killed, right? On, on camera or not on camera, but just being killed nonetheless. And here we have this holiday that folks were ignoring for years. And now they realize, oh, that was a thing. We didn't think we should be celebrating when black people were set free, you know? Um, and so to have that joy in the midst of this sadness is important. I think that's a big part of black culture is like, we still need to remember that we love blackness, right? Mm -hmm. We hate what people do to us, but the blackness itself is full of so much reverie that we, we have to enjoy it while we can and for ourselves. That's beautiful. Your work is obviously so uh, musical and like lyrical when you write poetry does it come from a place like you'll get a refrain or something first or is it the seed of an idea how do you build on what you're trying to do through your poetry because it's so specific you know what I recognize maybe in the past couple of years or so the importance of repetition for me like that refrain of I need to hear this idea again and again and again to reinforce it. And I won't even say that I do it on purpose. I wish I could say that because it would make it so much easier to write poems right now. But I think that it just happens when right? the idea kind of sticks with me for a long time. 
It's like, no, we're still doing this. No, this is still happening. Or if it's a question being repeated, there's so many different answers. And so I think that's what kind of adds that musical quality. It's easy to fall into the low of the poem because it is, you know, uh, consistent. It isn't ceasing. This is going to continue to happen. The poems sometimes feel like they could never end. There could always be a new image, a new idea, a new something. And I think that kind of continuation and a kind of uh, cyclical nature of, of writing and, and poetry and oral history in African-American communities is so important. I think it kind of bleeds through to the poetry. But I wish I could claim it and bottle it up and like figure out like, where did that come from? I don't know. I think it comes from not sleeping enough. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of um, also like Chris Rock because of the way he repeats and brings things around and underscores totally and it is a and i'm sure he's not sitting there being like okay i'm gonna repeat this three times you know what i mean it's just falling into a rhythm because the repetition is important and it makes the idea do something in your head so i i just find that so fascinating and i really love the repetition in your work yeah it makes it so powerful because there is this legacy of endurance especially and like now we're looking at 400 years since slavery and there's still been so many iterations of looking for freedom and finding it and still this shitty fucking system and I feel that in your work it's so powerful that's something I think um you know I do this lectureship with my students in class right like I talk about Black Lives Matter of course and I go back to 1619 to the first 40 Africans to be brought to America as slaves. And we just talk about how black lives were ma mattered before that moment, but on this particular soil, they started mattering at that moment, right? And so every single year that a black person existed in this nation, on this land before it became a nation, black lives matter. And we've been fighting to make them matter to the larger public since that moment. Because at that moment, when those Africans were captured and brought here on that Dutch slave ship, someone decided that these lives did not matter. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the repetition of repeating it now, like, yeah, I got to keep saying Black Lives Matter because you're not getting it. I keep saying it and I'm going to come have to keep saying it forever and I'll keep shouting freedom forever until it's uh, a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Um, so that's a big part of it. So my boyfriend showed me this meme a couple nights ago and at the top it was like breaking news. The Nazi statues have been ripped down in Germany, finally. And then it was like, correction, there are no Nazi statues in Germany because they've like, I feel like it's reckoned illegal, with this actually, is ugly, is. yeah. The ugly past has, I feel like, really been looked at in their culture. And we have not done that. Whatever opportunities we have to dust that under the rug, we will take them. You know what's amazing? The Confederate statues, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, they're very cheaply made, right? Because they were thrown up hastily uh, during the 50s and 60s and 70s to uh, kind of like squelch, you know, civil rights uh, discussions happening. Let them know like, hey, no, actually, we don't like you. So I'm going to put this up, this, this really ugly, I mean, some of them are just really grotesque. The, the art, the, the craftsmanship sucks, right? Also hard to make racist good looking. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, there's so much eating them in, from the inside, you know? Um, and so they went up really quickly just for that reason. They weren't put up right after the Civil War to commemorate these soldiers, you know, these generals. They were put up 100 years later to remind you like, oh yeah, you should forget about slavery, but we want to remember. Like, where else can you go where the losing team gets the banner and the rafters? No sports team does this, right? 
when the Lakers win the championship, if they beat somebody, they don't go and hang up Boston Celtics rafter, uh, <laughs> totally. rafters. They don't do that. They would never do that. Even the Clippers cover the Lakers banners when they play. And so it's ridiculous to have those flags, those statues. Like, what? Who, what? Like, do we have statues for, you know, British soldiers and generals around the nation that fought right. against the American Revolution? I don't think we, we do that, no. For people that hate snowflakes, they're the most sensitive motherfuckers of all. You're worried about participation trophies, motherfucker? Those statues are the biggest participation trophies of all time. <laughs> you lost and they made you one so you wouldn't be too sad. Yeah, that's like a disgusting, menacing symbol to put up just to like keep people in line, I guess. Literally, that's it. It's like a hall monitor for the town. It's like, hey, hey, hey. I know you can walk through this square freely now, but just in case you forgot, this man, he wants you to be a slave. Like, oh, that's great. Thank you. I, um, okay, I'll be going now. That's literally what they want. It's like, well, you're not welcome here. Just so you know. I can't say it. I mean, I probably could say it, but eh, the statue will say it enough. It's like a permanent burning cross. Just like FYI. Flowers are blooming, the grass is growing, and it's time to mow your lawn, privates. Thanks to our sponsor, Manscaped, you can trim those hedges below the belt safely and efficiently. That's right, Manscaped is here to make sure your balls are smooth and smelling nice. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. They have precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped is cutting edge. They have the Perfect Package 3.0 kit, They've got their Lawnmower 3.0 that is waterproof and cordless. They have Crop Reviver. They have anti-ball chafing deodorant and moisturizer. Whatever you need to spruce up your balls, Manscaped has got you covered. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months. And for a limited time, subscribers get two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag, $39 value, what? And the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxer briefs. I love all the testosterone this company is bringing to the table. This is the perfect package for your perfect package, and we've got a great deal for you, privates. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PRIVATE at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PRIVATE. It's summer, baby, and your balls and whoever touches them will thank you. How has it been to live in your body in the last six weeks and like see people kind of wake up and I'm sure there's like a lot of emotions that go with that and feelings and if you could share any of that. Yeah, it's been, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. I have a poem where I talk a little bit about this. Um, when the first kind of uh, clash of like Black Lives Matter and just talking about it happened, Folks were asking me, like, well, aren't you angry? And I'm like, yeah, I've been angry. I've been angry for a very long time. I've been exhausted. I've been mad. Um, you know, I've, I've been in this state for a long time. Now we're kind of collectively in it. You know, it's like out in the open, but I've been exhausted. And so in these past six weeks, I think at the beginning, I had a moment of numbness, maybe, because, you know, how much more can you take, a person take, a, a community take? And it's become so routine to see uh, Black death and trauma online, on television. I mean, they're not even blurring faces anymore, barely, you know. Um, it's so regular now. 
that the names kind of blur together, the faces kind of blur together, even for, for me. And so it was tough to harness my energy to focus and say, okay, I need to like really pay attention right now. But of course, the heart pays attention, right? And so it was also incredibly depressing. Um, I spent a day of just like not wanting to leave my bed. You know, I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to move. I wasn't hungry, but I was also like dizzy and shaky. I was physically going through the, the loss of George Floyd at first because I just, I couldn't take it. And then I opened my phone and there's like three more people, two more people. This is happening. That's happening. And so it's been really arresting um, to deal with. And then, uh, of course, as the weeks go on, you can feel that anger into more productive, you know, things and, you know, protest and, and talking to people and really communicating and educating. But it's also been incredibly frustrating, I'm I sure, will say. And yeah. I'm sure you've witnessed on social media, folks are like, I don't really get this whole thing. Why can't you just, like, no, I don't think you understand. Yeah. Like, and then um, I heard this bullshit term this week, which I'd never heard before, allyship fatigue. <laughs> Bridget just put her hands over her face. <laughs> I was like, are you guys for real? <laughs> it's been so hard being there for black people for two whole weeks. We chai chai. <laughs> I saw like three think pieces about that fly past my face on Twitter. And I was like, go ahead and clock out and go back to whatever you're doing before. Because I don't really... You're, you're tag tag out you know um you're dismissed you don't have to be a part of this if you're that tired then please go on with your day like thank you for letting Taking me know yeah. um i've seen your paperwork you know there's no uh, payment for this i don't have any cookies to give you no barbecue invites um please go ahead back to wherever you were before so i can go ahead and keep doing the work <laughs> it's so funny <laughs> it's honestly it's like okay, you can be tired. Like, that's natural. We're all tired. We're all like, this is some shit. Yes, it is. Some shit, it is. But also, so what? Like, I'm brown every day. I don't know what to tell you. I get fatigued as well. I cannot take this off and put it away. Also, white people have to get used to the idea that, like, not everything's an outdoor thought. Like, you can privately for a second be like, hi, I'm feeling tired today. But, like, nobody needs to hear about that. Shut the fuck up, regroup, and get back to it. Like, why does everybody need to know? At least not me. (laughs) I've been talking to some folks about, like, the need for kind of intraracial conversations, right? So, Mm -hmm. like, intraracial meaning, like, within your race. Black folks are having intraracial conversations every single day about how to manage and get through life and cope. I think that white folks do the same thing. You need to have mm-hmm. intraracial conversations where you are not having it out loud with me or seeking my validation or my opinion or my witnessing of it to like validate your allyship. Like just go ahead and talk to each other about mm-hmm. how you feel because feelings are real, right? So unpack that with each other, figure that out alone and then come back and be an ally like you said you're going to be with me, right? Just give me the front facing part of it. Don't give me the back end of it. But because whiteness is so... Um, it, it is everything, right? Because whiteness is the assumed like base of being. It's okay to have these conversations out loud because who's going to say you shouldn't? Because I've always had my conversations out loud. What are you talking about? I'm white. What are you saying? <laughs> I'm living the regular experience. You're having a, another experience. So you have your individual conversation, but I am like, it's kind of, the privilege shows up in that. Yeah. And um, privilege is something people have to unpack on their own and figure out, but it does pop up. Well, we really appreciate you having an educating conversation with us. And I've had some conversations about race that have surprised me about some people that I know. So 
I feel like, yes, that is so important because there still is so, so much that we all need to unpack. I love that, please, because all of my Google Hangouts are Black people meeting together, trying to talk about how to get through this in our own kind of little bubble to manage, you know, the outward facing world. I think everyone should be doing that. Yes. Great advice. Hey, Courtney, you want to know what my favorite thing in the world is? It rhymes with tube. Um, boob. Damn it. Okay, that's it. Do you want to know what my second favorite thing that rhymes with tube is? I'm going to go with Uber Lube. Yes, you got it. I love Uber Lube. It's the key to maximizing pleasure. I love it when I'm masturbating alone. I love it when I'm having sex with my man. Look, if you're going to lubricate, you want to make sure it's with the highest quality ingredients that are safe for your body. And in that respect, nothing beats Uber Lube. Girl, you do not have to sell me an Uber Lube, but I love that you care about me enough to give me such a solid recommendation because Uber Lube is the best. It's got a nice velvety finish and it's great for all kinds of play, vaginal, oral, or anal. You know what? Why not all three? And because Uber Lube has such a simple ingredient list, it makes it really good for people with sensitivities to other lubricants, which me and you have had conversations about. Plus, Uber Lube lets skin feel skin. Like, lube is just supposed to enhance touch. It's not supposed to overpower it. Uber Lube adds a thin layer that leads to just the right amount of slip, while still allowing for, you know, those skin-on-skin sensations. You guys, we could go on and on and on all day about Uber Lube, but the bottom line is, you gotta try it for yourself. And right now, they're offering Private Parts Unknown listeners a special offer. 10% off and free shipping when you use our code PRIVATE at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping. Just use code PRIVATE at uberlube.com. I wanted to ask them poetry questions, may I? Let's do it. Yay! So who was your first favorite poet? Who do you love reading now? And did you transition to slam poetry? Or was that always the thing that spoke to you? Well, let's see. So the first book of poetry I ever read was by Langston Hughes, which is like obvious because he is the poet that gets taught in school. He's he's maybe the only Black poet. Uh, that folks even teach in some classes. I've witnessed it myself and I'm like, you know, other people exist. Uh, but I read <laughs> his book first. I was a little kid. My aunt had a book. It had a picture of a guy with like a, um, a cloud on a string or something like that. And I was like, well, what is this? You know, let's see what's happening here. And so he's been like my patron saint of poetry. Like I just, I, I love everything that I learned from his work. Um, and I learned from all of his work, his poetry and his fiction too. Um, right now I'm getting into like these, these new poets, they're new to me, I guess you can say, right? Like I've seen these poets pop up on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm like, where did this come from? Where have you been? What is going on? Um, but my favorite poet at the moment is Jericho Brown. Jericho Brown um, just won the Pulitzer. I met him last summer at a workshop. Um, he was a workshop teacher for us at Hurston Wright uh, at Howard University. And I was like, I love you. I would like to read every single thing you've ever written in your life. If you could just, you know, send it to my home immediately, then I could, I could do that. Um, and so, you know, I already had all his books. So I was already like, I love the books, but I love how he sounds, love how he reads. And really, it's been quite inspirational for me when it comes to even my writing, like the way that he uh, takes chances. 
I think when it comes to performance, for me, I don't think that I'm necessarily a slam poet or a spoken word poet, particularly, because those are crafts that I'm just kind of stepping into working with, right? I'm a poet of the oldest sense, maybe, right? Um, but there's also like a division between, you know, poets who perform and poets who write books, poets who have an MFA in creative writing and poets who, you know, came out of the workshop cycle in, in a community space. And so I try to find, see myself as in between all those spaces, if I can, that I'm not in just one. So um, I do have an MFA in writing, but it didn't make me a good poet, right? It just it made me a teacher in the end. And I do have experience of doing performances, a lot of them, as you guys have witnessed the scene. But I also just like to sit down and just write out a good poem, right? So I think I'm kind of in the middle. I haven't decided yet, but I think the oral tradition of reading poetry out loud is so essential to African-American culture and history that I'm so glad that I can be a part of those spaces and that I have the kind of voice that people want to listen to because honestly, before all of this, I was like, my voice, kind of annoying. I don't know if I want to do this <laughs> on tape. <laughs> How dare you, Bridget? Talk to yourself like that. <laughs> Big fan. So it's working out so far. I'll say that. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> and it's interesting that you're so reluctant to be like, oh, well, I'm just stepping into the slam poet performance space. Like, this isn't my space, but you crush at it. I think a bunch of the people that were at the show that Courtney and I were at, I think everyone teared up when you were talking and people were before that, like not even listening. They were kind of ready to pass out because it was so hot. And then you went up there and people literally were having like emotional experiences. And that's not just like reading a poem. That's an art. You performed it and it was beautiful. And you should totally own that. That reading was so interesting. I was like, this is a party. People are drinking champagne. They don't want to listen to this poetry right now. And um, so I knew I had to command and like, hey, listen to me, please, please listen to me. Um, and so folks actually turned around to hear what I was saying. I was like, yo, okay. This is going well. And then people were crying. And I was like, yo, you're really listening. Well, let's just go for the gut. You know, jab, jab, punch, punch, uppercut. Let's just get right into it. Um, and I think I left like shortly after. And I was like, I'm exhausted. I feel like I've been on the ropes this whole time. But it was a really great event. Uh, it was so good. I literally left and in the parking lot was like, I am going to pitch that story. She's so fucking good. <laughs> yeah um okay so should we get into the three questions Soph? sure yeah let's do it okay number one what is your favorite work of art by a black artist and listen it's a recommendation it doesn't have to be like going on your tombstone <laughs> <laughs> this is the one i had the most trouble with i have all these long notes for everything else and that one i was like my favorite? I have to pick a favorite? Or a couple. <laughs> Doesn't have to be the favorite. So I'll use art, you know, in a large sense. So my favorite novel and favorite novelist ever, Toni Morrison, my favorite novelist, Jazz. I think it is a beautiful, like, a work of art, just the way that it's written, everything that she says, the language, the texture of just the descriptions. I wish I could write novels. I cannot. I've tried it. It's not going to happen. I've accepted that weakness. Uh, but that's like my favorite piece of anything. Like if I, someone asked me like, what do you recommend? Jazz by Toni Morrison, please, if you, if you can. And right now, my favorite artist is Kadir Nelson. And he actually has the cover of The New Yorker and the cover of, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting the other one. The New Yorker for sure. The other one I'm forgetting. But he makes these really incredible illustrations. Um, you all might have, it's going, they're going viral right now. So they're, they're fairly popular. Actually, I just look at it right now. But Kadir Nelson is just an amazing artist. I feel like he really captures 
what America is talking about in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's why he gets repeatedly tapped for these covers. I mean, I think it's like maybe his fifth or sixth New Yorker cover. Um, and Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone and the New Yorker. I just like, this is, I want to follow your, follow your career until, you know, you're an old man and I'm an old lady and I just buy all your stuff and put it on my walls, right? Like, I love his work. And my favorite photographer right now is Devin Allen out of Baltimore. He just, amazing. He has the cover right now for Time Magazine. That's how amazing it is, right? And I, I bought his book. I'm like, I want to just look at your pictures all day long. So those are my favorites right now. Oh, I love that. Those are such great regs. Okay. So question number two, what impact has race had on your experiences in dating and relationships? This is a tough one. I don't date a whole lot. And I was talking to my best friend about this. You know, we were having a, a best friend chat and I was like, dating and relationships, let's, uh, I, don't, I don't know. And I realized that like for black women, dating looks a lot different from other women and other races, right? Uh, the frequency of dating, the pool to date, the space. I mean, all those things look different before the pandemic, right? Before like we were all, you know, hey, let's Zoom date for, you know, wine and cheese or whatever the case is. Like mm -hmm. it, it just, it looks and feels different. We often talk about hearing folks say like, I, I had a slow month. I've only gone on a date a week. And I'm like, a date a week? I wish. Like the same person, two different people, four people, five? Like what's happening? <laughs> um, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, I, that's just not, that's it hasn't been my experience as a Black woman. Um, and so when I think about for dating as a black woman, you know, there are a couple of things, some things don't necessarily affect me as much like colorism isn't a thing that necessarily affects me. I'm not a dark skinned black woman, but it is something that affects black women when it comes to dating. And for me, it's, it would just be particular that I'm a fat black woman. And so fat phobia and racism are very deeply linked and what we view as beautiful, right? Like the image of beautiful and that, I mentioned beauty because it's such a largely aesthetic dating thing now because of apps and like, do I swipe left or swipe mm -hmm. right? Like, is she cute? You know, like what is happening? I think beauty is so big in this and the image of beauty is not a thin woman, period. It's a thin white woman, right? If it is a thin black woman, it's a thin black woman who has some proximity to whiteness. And if it is a black woman, it may be a very overly curvy black woman, right? Like a really voluptuous black woman, but not necessarily my particular curve. And so for me, dating's always been really interesting. I primarily date black men, because black men are who approach me, they're who see me and see my particular kind of beauty as beautiful. And not that I don't get hit on by, you know, white men or uh, Latinx men or whatever cases, but I, I very infrequently get hit on by those men. And it's never necessarily um, a genuine something. It's uh, quite fetishy in the end. It's like, mm. you're a black girl, you're a pretty black girl. Okay, let's see. Never had a black girl before. It's like, no, we, we won't have one, not me. Pick the next one, I'm so sorry. Actually, don't pick her either. Just leave if you can, right? The last person we talked to said the exact same thing. She's like, I'm tired of being like a notch on your bedpost and like, so you can check off that box of, oh, I've now I've been with a black girl. Yes, there was a guy uh, messaging a friend of mine and he said, you know, well, you wouldn't be my first black girlfriend. And she was like, no, actually, I won't be your next black girl either. Like that's, that's not <laughs> <laughs> that just won't happen. And so I think for me, it, it has affected my dating, but not in a way that's easily quantifiable no one's like looked at me like you know what I would date you but you're black like I never had that experience because again mm -hmm. non-black men don't really approach me that way but I have noticed that in the hierarchy of what black men in particular look for in the world um, especially younger years of course uh, was a particular media driven image of black women that I did not fulfill did not want to fulfill you know whatever the case is and I didn't realize that while I was being taught these really you know, fat phobic uh, ideas about beauty as a kid, that so were they. Mm -hmm. And so we all had to learn and like unpack it and figure it out. And so now that I'm a little bit older in my thirties, thank goodness, 
common sense came in the 30s. Um, everyone seems to be kind of figuring it out. So I think dating's going to change a bit soon, but it definitely has had a little impact when it comes to uh, race and standards of beauty. Yeah, apps, man. Apps and beauty standards. So question number three, uh, one thing you want people to know about how to be a better ally. I'm so glad you asked this question because I think that allyship is really maybe not the best word for it, right? I like the idea of an accomplice, right? Like, I'm yeah. in this fight and so are you. Yeah, I like that too. Like, you're involved. You're, you're with me in this, you know? Um, and so the first thing I want to say about being an ally is always that you can't decide that you're an ally. Like, you can decide that you want to be an ally, but it's really through the action, right? You can prove that you're an ally through what you do and how you speak and how you conduct yourself and you know do things and so the community kind of gives you that gift like for me for example I would like to be an ally to queer individuals I really would like to be an ally I do my best to be one and I hope that I'm being seen as one through my actions but all I can do is keep doing it and so for allies for for black people in particular I always say that if you are a non-black person of color then the first thing to do is to take a moment to look at the anti-blackness uh, that's happening within your own community, right? Like, how, in what ways have you been also fed these same uh, conversations, these same myths about Black people and Blackness um, in your community? And, you know, work on that. Like, figure, okay, so how do I unpack, like, the fact that I think my hair is bad, right? Because it's so close to kinky hair of Black people. Like, how do I unpack that, you know, my sister's darker than me and we call her something else, right? Like, what do I do about that? And then for white persons who want to be allies to black people in particular, it's always to kind of abandon two things. One, the idea that you need to be a white savior to black people. I need to get out there and save these black folks. Something is happening. I have privilege. I'm going to go out there and save them. It's like, no, actually, don't save me. Just fight next to me. Like, just fight with me. Like, join me in this battle. I don't need you to save me necessarily. And then the other idea is to uh, exonerate. Like, well, you know, I'm not one of those folks. I've never been racist and I've always had black friends and I don't know what you're talking about I would never do that like that idea like just so you know I'm a good white person like yeah okay I get it because you showed up so please just do the work now and like don't give me the extra little spiel about it um and that those are two like not easy things to do they take a lot of self-reflection and a lot of like daily habits right like to stop and say oh you know what my bad I did not mean to overstep like this Yo, but I'm with you. Let's keep going. So that's really my only ally thing to say. Unpack your blackness, abandon the white savior thing, which is so easy to fall into because that's what what we get fed through media, what we get fed through social media in particular right now. It's like, hey, look at me. I'm saving all these black people with my body. It's like, yeah, thank you. When they knock you down, they will still take me. Mm -hmm. And they'll apologize to you later. You're not really helping me in that way. Um, And then to abandon the idea to have to exonerate yourself. It's like, all these emails that people have been sending out to all their black friends asking if they're okay. And I know you're probably upset right now and I hope that you're doing well. Those are all just little micro exonerations, right? It's like, just so you know, I was thinking about you because you are black and that man was black and he's dead now. So are you okay? Mm-hmm. Like, well, what do you think? If you knew me really well, you probably would know that I'm not okay. And you shouldn't be okay either. Right? Like that idea of like that we're having these two very separate um, conversations. So those are my, my biggest pushes to white allies or folks who want to be allies and for non-black people of color just to acknowledge like yo I got some work to do yeah it really is like such an active thing that you need to be always engaged in and I've never been aware of it in that particular way that I think so many people now are and so it's 
it's good. We appreciate your patience. <laughs> and <laughs> we're sorry uh, it took this long. Look, I, as I said um, to a couple folks on social media um, and on the news yesterday, as luck would have it, um, it's okay if you're just learning, right? Like, mm -hmm. if you're just finding out something, the goal is to keep learning. Like, I didn't know this last year, but I know it now. And so I do this, right? I mean, that's me as a professor. I'm just like, well, today is a new day, new lesson, mm -hmm. new vocabulary word. Now go use it in a sentence, please. And that's really the goal with learning about this stuff. It's like, oh, I didn't realize that. Acknowledge it. Unpack why you didn't know about it for yourself. Figure out, like, what the root of the issue was. And then get to work. And rest if you need to. I don't want anybody out there, you know, hurting themselves. <laughs> like, please rest. There are people who are like, can you give me a list of books to read? And I was like, sure. Here are 30 books you could read. Are you going to read those right now? I doubt it. Take a nap. I'm reading romance novels right now. So, <laughs> you know, read your racism guides tomorrow. Tonight, do something else. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to even be on a love relationship podcast. I was like, hey. what? <laughs> Let's go. Let's do it. Hey, are you single right now? Single, single, single. Okay, well, if anyone just fell in love with her, like, yeah, we what's did. your IG? Hit him with that handle. <laughs> <laughs> Drop the handle for Twitter and IG. Bridget Bianca on Instagram. You can find me and all of my lovely. Uh, Instagram filtered pictures to cover the bags under my eyes from not sleeping as much as I should come on and hang out with me for a little while and then and you have a book out or coming out yes it's out it's four months old it's just a wee babe oh I have to get it I have to get it yes it literally it came out and then the pandemic said no everyone go back inside don't go to any bookstores so it's called be trouble it was published by Writ Large Press and The Accomplices, and it's available on all platforms. Right now, actually, it's sold out on Amazon. So I would suggest hey. folks check it out on Bookshop or order it from their local uh, Black bookseller, like Esteban Books here in Lamert Park. So, you know, get it where you can. Nice. Yes. Get that book. We're going to. We'll get a copy. Definitely. Thank you so much, Bridget. Wow, that was incredible. She is a teacher through and through, in addition to being like an incredible performer and an incredible writer. And we're so lucky we had her. Yeah, I love Bridget so much. And I'm so glad we got to share her work with you guys. And we're going to keep this anti-racism series going. So stay tuned. Next week, we have another amazing interview. Hey, Sophia, what's that bomb ass music? I'm so glad you asked. This music is by our friend Amy Rosh. You can find her music on Spotify. R-A-A-S-C-H. This episode was mixed by Mike Castaneda from Plastic Audio. We, we love, love you, Mike. Out of sync. Not really a surprise. Not good. <laughs> Not good as usual. And now it's time for... Bum, 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 bum. The Review of the Week. Who do we got this time? Jamie Finch, travel and sex, five stars, travel and sex, exclamation point, question mark, two of my favorite pastimes slash topics, all in one podcast, yes, please. I am especially loving this podcast during these times since I can't exactly get on a plane and fulfill my travel addiction, so instead I get to live vicariously through these two awesome women. 
Are you talking about us, Jamie? <laughs> Ooh, you fuck around. You're going to make me a Mrs. Finch, Jamie. We love you, Jamie. Thank you for leaving us a review. And if you guys want to wife us, all you got to do is leave a review. It's really that simple. So... <laughs> Head on over to Apple Podcasts, smash down those five stars, and tell us what you love about this show. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.